Chapter Nine of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: The Censor Defied, Machine Gun Training, Rumors of War, Blobs Gets Into Trouble. Now I wonder if I shall incur the odium of the authorities or prolong the war by saying where it was that we lived in those nice days on Salisbury Plain. I should like to say the name as it was a nice place, the nicest in the neighborhood. I wonder if I dare. Shall I? No. Yes, I will. It was Sutton Vini. The German mark goes up in value on all the exchanges, consternation in Wall Street. Wish I hadn't said it now. Well, I've done it, so there you are. Sutton Vini was the place. A delightful little English village it must have been before all we khaki locusts settled upon it. It was quite a pleasure having all this military training set in such delightful surroundings. The headquarters themselves possessed most charming gardens, but as I have said in a previous chapter, such luxuries always seem painful to me. Mailed fist work and charming gardens are so desperately out of harmony with each other. Yet all the Sutton Vaney times seem mighty pleasant to me. Perhaps it was that I had not long since come out of that drab whirl of events, the front. Houses without roofs and chateaus turned inside out still lingered in my mind's eye. On the whole it was a short but happy time at Sutton Vini, standing out with pleasing brightness in all my war life. I do not write all this sort of stuff which you've just read, or slurred over, with the idea of demonstrating that I am thinking different from anyone else about war. I do so in the hopes and indeed with the knowledge that there were and are many who have looked on their various war experiences in the same way that I have. I was merely a common or garden captain, leading a common or garden captain's life, and now as I write I wonder why the Diabolo I have the cheek to write about it at all. I have apologized once in the preface of Bullets and Billets. I won't do it again. Here at Sutton Vini and all over the plain, thousands of men were leading the most arduous and dullest of lives imaginable. It was a new picture altogether to me. Previously I had seen only the practical application of warlike skill. Now here at Sutton Vini all the technique was being acquired. In my daily work with the machine gunners I used to make desperate attempts to brighten up the job for them by giving them as vivid word pictures of the front and its ways as possible. Occasionally I organized and ran a small battle in some part of the surrounding country. This led to quite exciting times. I galvanized the opposing gun teams into enthusiastic action by means of prizes and competitions. Whilst all this training was in progress, an assistant trainer joined me, a second lieutenant who had been wounded and was on light duty like myself. He was a most efficient machine gunner. In fact, I have never seen his equal at machine gun mechanism. We both went out and each took a hand in the competitions. Over a wide tract of variegated land, two sides, composed of two gun teams in each, would attack each other. We invented a series of rules so that decisions could be arrived at, and then had breathlessly exciting mornings. We crept about the country after each other, and butchered each other silently round hedges and ditches, until the overwhelming superiority of one side over the other became apparent owing to someone sticking a head lathered in mud out of a culvert and announcing, We've been enfilading you for at least half an hour. Dispute, verdict, then, fall in on the road. 
So we'd all march back to barracks, beguiling the tedium of the way home by arguments as to which side had really won. Things were now getting pretty ship-shape with the division all round. The air was full of rumors. Sample rumors. I hear we're going to Egypt. Or, I shouldn't be surprised if we had orders to go to France any day now. All this made life much more interesting and exciting. Leave was being granted in great profusion, which was a good sign. It looked as if they were trying to let everyone have home leave before going out. The whole circus was bristling with equipment and excitement. Amongst the gentlemen to have leave was Mr. Blobs, my servant. That dense but happy rubicund face burst into my hunt one morning and gave forth the following. Sergeant says as I'm in the next lot for leave. Are you, Blobs? I said. That's a good job. You'll be able to go along and see that girl of yours, and go for a spin in your father's thrashing machine if you're lucky. A bovine grin, followed with, That's right, sir. In due course, Blobs got his leave and went to his home in Suffolk. Like all good soldiers, he, of course, overstayed his pass. Always suspect a soldier who comes back on the day he's been told to. Then, like all good soldiers, he had to be hauled up and punished. The first step in this procedure consists of the offender coming up before his immediate commander. In this case, Blobs had to be got at by me. He had returned two days late, so I sternly asked him why. Well, it was like this, sir, he replied. Me and my mate started to come back the day as was on the pass for us to come back, and we left Barry St. Edmunds in the morning to come along to Lunnan. When we got there, a bloke on the platform says to us, Where are ye for? says he. And I, silly-like, says, Barry St. Edmunds. And he took us along to a train, and the next thing we was back at Barry. You see, sir, I thought as the man was asking us where we had come from, not where we was a-going to. Well, there weren't a train back to London not till night-time. So we comes on that, and we got to London about six o'clock in the morning. Me and my mate had never been to this here station before, and we wasn't going to ask no more questions again. We'd had enough of being sent back to Barry. Presently up comes a lady, and she says as she would show us how to go. She says, where are you going? She says. So I says, Sutton Veney. So she says, come along with me then, and we went down a lot of tunnels to where the trains was a-running into a old like. She says she couldn't stop, but she says, take the next train as comes in. Well, sir, I reckon we watched about half a dozen of them trains go out afore we got into one. What made you do that, Blobs? I inquired. What did you want to wait there for? Well, sir, replied Blobs, this is how it was. A carriage would come into the station shuntin'-like, without any engine on. And I says to my mate, There's eaps of time, I says. The train can't go without an engine on. And just as we was sittin' on that there seat, the carriage would go off by itself down the hole at the end. I knows what it was now. But you see, sir, I didn't understand anything about them electric trains as haven't got no engines, and no more did my mate. Poor old blobs and mate. They knew something about trains by now. The knockabout wanderings that will have led them through Southampton, Havre, Rouen, Amiens, will have gone a long way to destroying the old-world cabbage-like simplicity which at that time they possessed. End of chapter 9 Recording by Philip Gould